right. Good evening, everyone. I don't know. Yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah. All right. Well, good evening, everyone. For those of you who are here in person, it's good to see you here. For those of you who are here on Zoom, welcome. Um, we're going to get started here. I just want to open us up with a word of prayer. There are some sheets on the short table in the back that we're going to be using tonight. If you grab those on the way in, that's great. If not, you can grab a pair now. And Carl actually has electronic versions of it for folks who are on Zoom. But as always, we just want to commit our time to the Lord through prayer, um, particularly with some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement in the believing church over these issues, and we certainly want to do everything we can to talk about some of the different perspectives, but not to have it become you know, contentious or argumentative or divisive. Um, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much um, for giving us the opportunity to be together tonight. Um, we thank you, Lord God, for the word that you have given to us. And Lord, you remind us that your word is perfect. It's exactly what you wanted to say to us and exactly the way you wanted to say it to us. We, by faith, receive it as your inspired and inerrant word. Father, we recognize that everything that we need for life and godliness is found in you and comes to us in large measure through the accounts of scripture that have been saved for us. And so we thank you for that as well. And Father, we realize that tonight we're going to talk about some things that, that your people are in disagreement over. Lord, your bride, your, your, your church, who you offered up your life to save and redeem and purify and cleanse. Lord, we are not in full agreement on these things. And so we enter this discussion, Lord God, with humility. We enter it with a desire, Lord, to do everything we can to, to rightly understand your scriptures, to rightly apply them to our lives. But realizing, Lord, there probably will still be some uh, uncertainty, probably still some questions that will not be fully answered. And so we just want to commit this discussion to you. As always, Lord God, we invite you to send your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would be our teacher. We pray that we would be attentive to what you are saying to us through him, that each one of us would hear his voice. And so again, Jesus, finally, we just want to pray that everything we do tonight will ultimately bring you glory, because we realize that is where creation is heading, that in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus, that you are Lord. And so that's what we want to do tonight is bring you the glory that you so completely deserve. And Jesus, it is in your name and your name alone that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, when we met uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the return of Jesus Christ and specifically the resurrection of the body. And so what I want to do is just quickly review sort of the final points that we were making in that regard. And to do that, I want to look again at one of the passages of scripture we closed with, which is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And again, we're just going to go through this quickly because this was kind of one of the final things we looked at in terms of talking about the return of Jesus Christ and 
the resurrection of the body. So before we read that, you know, what we want to remember is we live on this earth in a physical body. Okay, so the picture is obviously very simple, but hopefully it makes the point clear. We talked earlier in our eschatology study about the different kinds of death that scripture speaks of. One of the kinds of death that scripture speaks of is physical death. Remember, we said it's very, very helpful to think of death as separation. Death as separation. So when you die physically, your immaterial self, your spirit or your soul, is separated from your physical body. So when you die physically, your physical body goes into the ground. But we've seen what we refer to as the intermediate state. Your spirit or your soul goes to be with the Lord. And even though the scriptures do not talk a lot about this, the scriptures absolutely make it clear that as a believer, the moment that we die physically, the moment that our spirit or our soul is separated from our physical body, we go to be with the Lord. Remember the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1 is facing his own death. And he realizes that if he dies, he's going to depart and go and be with Christ, which is better by far. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says to be present in the body is to be away from the Lord. And to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. So even though the scriptures don't talk a lot about the intermediate state, the scriptures make it clear that as believers, the moment that we die physically, we go to be with the Lord. So now picking up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, we're just going to see how Paul highlights what will happen when Jesus Christ comes again. So beginning in verse 13, he says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now, of course, here when Paul says falling asleep, he is using that as a euphemism for death. So the Thessalonian church was a little disturbed because some of their members had died. And they had died before Jesus Christ had come again. And so it's just so exciting to think of all this theology that they were learning for the first time. So they weren't quite sure what was going to happen. Because a lot of the Thessalonian believers were assuming that they would live to see the return of Jesus Christ. They were living with a great expectation. And 2,000 years later, we should have that same expectation. We should be living with that same longing and hope and desire to be the generation that sees Jesus Christ return. So they were wondering, well, what happened to our brothers and sisters who have died and Jesus Christ has not yet returned? And so the Apostle Paul says in verse 13, I don't want you to be ignorant about them. I want you to be aware of what happened and what will happen. Picking it up in verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those 
who have fallen asleep in him. So when Jesus Christ comes again, because that's now what Paul is beginning to talk about, when Jesus Christ comes again, he will not come alone. He will come with all of those who have fallen asleep in him. So all of those who have died physically, separated from their physical bodies, have gone without their physical bodies to be in the presence of the Lord. And now when Jesus Christ returns, they will come with him. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. So continuing in verse 15, it says, According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord. So now we learn something else. That when Jesus Christ comes again, there are not only going to be believers who have died physically coming with him, there are going to be believers still in their bodies alive on planet Earth. So when Jesus Christ comes again, he's going to bring with him those who have died, who have been in his presence since their death. But when he comes with those believers who have fallen asleep in him, there are going to be other believers still alive in their bodies on this earth. That's what the Apostle Paul says here. So again, verse 15, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So now Paul is talking about an order. He's clearly defining where believers are going to be. When Jesus Christ comes again, there are going to be, be believers who have not died physically that are on earth. And all the believers who have died physically with faith in Christ are going to come with him. But he says, those of us who are still alive, when the Lord returns, we're not going to proceed or we're not going to go ahead. We're not going to be before those who are coming with him. So first in what? Or second in what? Picking it up in verse 16. It says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Remember we said the return of Jesus Christ is not going to be something that is secret. is not going to be something that is missable. Remember Jesus says as lightning strikes in the west and lights up the sky in the east, so will be the return of the Son of Man, or the coming of the Son of Man. It's not going to be something that you're going to look around and say, oh, did it happen? Remember Jesus himself said, look. People are going to say, you know, I'm over there, or the Christ has come over there. Don't believe them, because when I come again, the whole world is going to see it. The whole world is going to see it. So the Apostle Paul is simply reverberating the, the words of Jesus. It's not going to be something that is hidden or secret. So the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is now the order that Paul is talking about. Well, what does it mean that they will rise? Now, we normally think of rising as being like, you know, you're lying down or getting up or something like that. Well, Paul has already said the dead in Christ are coming with him. So what are they rising from? Well, what the apostle Paul is talking about is bodily resurrection. 
bodily resurrection. When Jesus Christ comes again, all of the believers who have died, left their bodies in the ground or in the sea or ashes to be scattered, you know, obviously whatever happens to them, all the believers left their bodies behind and went to be the, with the Lord without their bodies. But remember, this is not the Lord's final plan for his redeemed. We are not going to be disembodied spirits and souls for all of eternity. This is a temporary condition. This is an intermediate state. So when Jesus Christ returns, bringing with him all those who have died in Christ, they rise first. So their bodies rise first. And now they are in their resurrection bodies. And we talked about this. These are bodies that will not grow old, that will not get sick, that will not in any way decay or break or have problems. These are eternal, perfect resurrection bodies. Right now, the only one who has received the resurrection body is Jesus Christ. No one has received that, and no one will till he returns. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is that those who are alive on planet Earth will not go ahead of those who have died. They will receive their resurrection bodies first. Then picking it up in verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So after the bodies of all those who have died in Christ are raised, then all those who are alive will be taken up to meet the Lord in the air. This is sometimes referred to as the rapture, the taking up of believers who are still physically alive in their physical bodies when Jesus Christ returns. Now, the one thing that Paul does not emphasize here that is emphasized in 1 Corinthians, we won't turn there just for the sake of time, but in 1 Corinthians, he says, even though we will not all sleep, we will all be changed. Remember, oftentimes when Paul is talking about sleep, even when Jesus is talking about sleep, what he means is death. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, we're not all going to die. Some of us are going to live to see the return of Jesus Christ. There is going to be that final generation of believers that will be alive on planet Earth when Jesus Christ comes again. It may be us. So we will not all sleep. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. So what happens at some point between that generation that's alive when Jesus Christ returns being in their mortal, perishable, get sick, break, fall apart, get old, get tired, all the problems our bodies give us, what happens at some point between them being on earth and being taken up to meet the Lord in the air, Paul says in the moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, we will be changed. Because the believers who have died, they've already left their mortal, perishable bodies behind. So they are raised first. 
they receive their resurrection bodies first. Those who are alive on planet Earth when Jesus comes again, who are still living in their mortal perishable bodies, they are then taken up to meet the Lord in the air and their bodies are changed in that instant. So now the entire community of believers has been given their resurrection bodies that they will have for all of eternity. Picking it up then in the middle of verse 17, we will caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. When Jesus Christ comes again, one of the greatest things that happens is bodily resurrection. Bodily resurrection. For those who have died and are already with Christ, they receive their resurrection bodies. For those who are alive on the earth, they are taken up to meet the Lord in the air, and their bodies are transformed in that instant. And then we are with the Lord forever. And then verse 18, therefore encourage each other with these words. This is an incredibly amazing, exciting, hope-filled promise that Jesus gives to all of us as believers. So we should be encouraging one another with this. One other thing that we're going to talk in greater detail about tonight, remember the word that Paul uses about those who are alive being taken up to meet the Lord in the air. Because some will argue that then at that point, Jesus goes back into heaven. But in fact, the word that Paul uses is a word that actually means to meet and then continue on with the one who was met. We see this in the parable in Matthew 25 of the 10 virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom to come. And it says when the bridegroom comes, they go out to meet him. But what do they do after they meet him? They go back into the place where the wedding feast is going to be held. The other place that this word is used in the New Testament is Acts 25, where Paul is making his way to Rome. And it says before he gets to Rome, some of the believers go out to meet him. Well, after they meet the Apostle Paul, what do they do? They go back into Rome with him. So the word that the Apostle Paul uses here, that word to meet, actually is the idea that you are coming out to meet in the sense you are coming out to greet and welcome one who is arriving. Because what we see in extra-biblical literature at this time is that this word was often used for a city to meet a delegation or ambassador or a dignitary that was coming into their town or city. They would go out to meet the one who was arriving, and then they would come back in with them. So the idea here is not that if there are believers on the planet who are being taken up to meet the Lord in the air, that it doesn't make any sense that they would be coming right back. Because in fact, that's exactly what the word that Paul uses there means. It means to greet someone who is arriving and then enter with them. Okay? So this is how we ended things a couple of weeks ago. And again, the main point here is that as we look for and long for the return of Jesus Christ, one of the great hopes that we have is these mortal bodies will be changed. These mortal bodies will be changed. No sickness, 
no disease, no aging, no anything. And of course, most of all, no death. God's purpose is not for us to live as disembodied spirits for eternity. This is a temporary state. Those who have died are in the presence of the Lord, but they are longing for the return of Jesus Christ. We see that in Revelation chapter 6, where John is given a vision of some of the martyrs, and they're saying, Lord, how long? They're not so much longing for their resurrection body, they're longing for their vindication. But all of the church of God, whether it is the church that's in heaven right now or the church that's on earth right now, all of the church of God should be incredibly desiring and longing the return of Jesus. Because that is the great, great, great hope that all of us have. And it is the culmination of the work of Christ on this earth. Okay? But let me pause here just to see if there's any comments or questions about this. Again, this is what we ended with. Just wanted to go over it before we launch into the idea of the millennium, because that's what we're going to get into next. But any comments or questions about what happens in terms of the resurrection of the body when Christ comes again? Yeah, just make sure we pass the mic around so that folks on Zoom can hear the questions. Okay, so is there any controversy within the church of what you've just described? The only controversy that I know of is when does this happen? When does this happen? And like I said, there are some folks who believe that when those who are on earth are taken up to meet the Lord in the air, then they all go back to heaven. This is folks who believe in the return of Jesus Christ being more than a single event. We talked about this a bit. There are folks who believe that the return of Jesus Christ is a two-part event, that there is an initial return that is somewhat hidden from the world, and that is usually referred to as the rapture. So the only disagreement that I know of would be that some believe that this is not an obvious return, but this is where believers are taken up. And again, they say, well, well, if Jesus is going to bring them back to earth, why would they go up in the first place? That, that's where they say it doesn't make sense. But that's where it's so interesting, where the word that Paul uses is actually a word that talks about going out to meet someone who is arriving. So the only controversy, major controversy that I know of is that some would argue that then Jesus takes all of the church and goes back up to heaven. And now life on earth gets terrible because all the believers have just been taken. So, and, and again, we talked about, you know, the movies that came out in the 80s and 90s, the Left Behind series. That's sort of what they're coming from. And we'll talk about that a little bit more tonight. It gets a little complex. But for the most part, you know, the hope that all believers have that we are going to receive resurrection bodies when Jesus Christ comes, that's not argued. There was a bit of the church that used to believe in what they called a soul sleep, that if you died before the return of Jesus Christ, you were just sort of unconscious until Christ returned. But I don't, I don't think that's accepted much in the believing church anymore. I think 
even though the New Testament doesn't talk a lot about it, the clear witness of the New Testament is that you are conscious and in the presence of the Lord. You are receiving the comfort and the peace and the joy that just exudes from being in the presence of Christ. So, so yeah, for the most part, most of this would be agreed upon within the believing church. But thank you for asking that. So, but any other questions about this before we move on? Yeah, Ted. You know, when, when Paul sit, talks about um, comforting one another with these words, you know, I think I, I think it's more than just a there, there, oh, don't feel so bad kind of comfort. But it's a it's a it's a thrilling, it's a it's an, a joy in filling kind of comforting. And the, the coming of the Lord Jesus, that's what it's all about. Amen. You know, and I mean, I, I was just looking at the end of Revelation and it says the spirit and the bride say come. And he who testifies of these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. And then it, it, the, the book almost ends, and the Bible almost ends with this: "Come, Lord Jesus." Amen. This is exciting stuff. This is not some kind of dead theology or some kind of there, there. It's not so bad. This is this is thrilling. This is what it's all about. Amen. Absolutely, absolutely. No, thank you for emphasizing that, Ted. Any anything else about this before I erase this and we we move on to the millennium? If we're ready for it, I'm not sure I'm ready for it, but let's let's head there. And just while I'm erasing this, as I said in the opening, I'm just going to repeat it now. The millennium is possibly one of the most disagreed upon subjects within Christianity. And it certainly is one of the most written about subjects in christianity i mean you can literally get you know a volume that's over a thousand pages that is a compilation of some of the differing positions that believing you know men and women of god men and women just like us who love jesus and love the bible and believe this is the inspired and errant word of god and believe that jesus is the only way to to the father i mean all the things that we are in you know, lockstep agreement on, you know, the millennium is one of these things where, oh my goodness, there's, there's basically three to four major understandings of it. And then there are a myriad of diversities within that. So anytime we as the church are entering into a discussion about something that the believing church is in disagreement on, you know, one thing that we want to do is we want to enter into it with a lot of humility. You know, men and women of God who are much wiser than us, much more learned in the scriptures than us, they're in disagreement on this stuff. So that should give us, you know, a, a little bit of a, of, of a pause right to begin with. Another thing that we need to keep in mind is that if God wanted his church to be in lockstep agreement over this issue right now, we would be. God is allowing these different understandings to continue. And so it's always worth asking the question, why? You know, there's, there's no question in the believing church about the incarnation of Jesus. Now that was a question for a couple hundred years. If you look at the history of the church, it took the church a couple hundred years to really come to what we just accept as, as absolute truth. What was the nature of the incarnation? 
the nature of the Trinity was also something that took the church a couple hundred years to sort out what exactly does the New Testament teach about the Trinity. You know, we are so fortunate for all of the work that was done by our predecessors and for the grace of God that was given the church so that when we talk about the incarnation or when we talk about the Trinity, there's no disagreement amongst the believing church. So anytime there is an issue in which the believing church continues to disagree, we always want to ask the question, well, why is the Lord allowing these differing perspectives to continue? Another thing to keep in mind, when there is uncertainty, the problem is never the Word of God. The Word of God is perfect. The Word of God is sufficient. The lack is never in the Word of God. It isn't, you know, a, a poor way that it is worded. It isn't that enough information is not given to us. The, the fault is never placed at the Lord's feet or the word of God's feet. It's just a reminder that we are incredibly small and we are incredibly limited. You know, the fact that God reveals any of himself to us is an absolute miracle. You know, God is so infinitely high above us. He could just speak a single word if he wanted to. He could speak a single word and all of humanity could search for all of eternity and not be able to comprehend that word. If he wanted to do that, that would be nothing for him. That would be nothing for him. So when we approach the scriptures, the fact that God is knowable to us at all, the fact that what he reveals to us of himself in scripture is accurate and reliable and true is amazing, is amazing. And we never, ever, ever want to lose sight of that as we enter into issues of discussion and disagreement within the believing church. One other thing I think that we need to keep in mind is, you know, at the end of our discussion tonight, we are not going to have satisfactorily answered every question. We're not. Because then we would be absolutely unique within the entire history of the church, because no other group has satisfactorily answered all of the questions related. So we need to go into it realizing, hey, we're not gonna have every question answered. And one of the things we're gonna try to do is say, well, you know, why do these different positions continue? Well, they continue because they really do catch some genuine emphases of scripture. And each one also has some pretty significant weaknesses and some pretty significant challenges to try to work out. So again, as, as with talking about the return of Jesus Christ as a single event or a two-part event, my purpose in this discussion is not to try to convince any of you. That's not my purpose. My purpose is let's dive into scripture. Let's read what scripture says. Let's do everything we can to understand what scripture says. Let's look and evaluate what the believing church is saying about this topic and these verses, and then decide for ourselves what we think makes the most sense. But at the end of the day, we don't want this to lead to division, to argument, to anything like that. And there's definitely room within the kingdom of God to have a little bit different approach to what we're going to be talking about next. Okay, so a lot of things just to sort of keep in mind in general, when we as believers are talking about things that the believing church is in disagreement on.
Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, Floor. I wasn't able to click on uh, when you were talking about uh, a word that Paul used in order to, I, I guess, to talk about like um, the uh, us going up to meet him. I mean, meet Jesus. Um, so if I sound confused, I am a bit. So that's what I'm trying to get clarification. It was on the last section, but not on the millennium. Yeah, maybe maybe we can talk more later because it was actually something that we looked at in great detail whenever it was, I think maybe a month ago. But oh, the I idea is, Floor, that the word that's used there that the believers are taken up to meet the Lord in the air, the word that is used there to meet, the two other times that it's used in the New Testament, Matthew 25 and okay. Acts 25, it's actually a group of people going out to meet someone who is arriving. And once they meet them, they all go back into where the group going out to meet them started. Because again, some people, like I say, argue that when those believers are raptured up to meet the Lord in the air, they all go back into heaven. Now, Paul doesn't explicitly say in 1 Thessalonians 4, either they all go back to heaven or they all come down to earth together. He doesn't, he doesn't say either. But one of the clues that he gives us is that word that he's chosen that's translated in most English versions to meet. And okay. it's the idea that a group or an individual from a place go out to meet someone who is arriving, and then they go back into that place together. That's all that I was saying. But, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But we talked about it at length yeah. previously. It was just part of the quick review there. So uh, okay. Thanks. the millennium. Um, so hopefully folks have the sheet in front of you that says uh, the millennium or the challenge of the silver age. Carl, do we have that sheet for the folks on Zoom? Excellent. Okay, so first of all, it's important for us to know that the word millennium in one of its uses and the way we're going to be using it simply means a thousand years. The word millennium actually means a thousand years. Okay, so that's the way we're going to be using it tonight. When we are talking about the theology of the millennium, we are basically asking the question, is there a silver age? Now, what do I mean by that? Is there clearly taught in scripture that there is an age that is better than now, but not as good as eternity? That's really the question of the millennium, or at least through one lens. So when we were looking at introductory issues to eschatology, we saw that the New Testament talks about the present age, but then also talks about the coming age. And so clearly the New Testament talks about two ages, the present age and the coming age. A couple of passages that talk about that, you can look these up on your own. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, talks about the present age and the coming age. Um, Luke chapter 18 
verses 29 to 30, or Matthew chapter 12, verse 32. Okay? So the New Testament clearly teaches that there is a present age and the coming age. So part of the question or part of the challenge of the millennium, is there something in between? Is there an in-between age? Something that's better than right now, but not as good as eternity. At its heart, that is part of the question of the millennium. So there are some passages in the Old Testament that if read a certain way, seem to indicate that there maybe is an age in between the present age and the coming age. So for example, Isaiah chapter 65, we're not going to read all of this, but we're going to read a little bit of this, just so we kind of have some of the, the background of some Old Testament prophecy that is possibly presenting a silver age. So Isaiah chapter 65. Let's pick it up in verse 17. It says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Now, right away, most of us are thinking, oh, that's, that's the coming age. The new heavens and the new earth, that's not the silver age. That's the golden age. That's eternity. That's perfection. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Now, if we were just to stop right there, we would say this is it. This is eternity. This is the new creation that Jesus is bringing. This is the beginning of forever. But the challenging verse is verse 20. Because Isaiah goes on to say, And never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth, and he who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. So now all of a sudden, it seems like as Isaiah is describing this incredibly amazing new creation of the Lord, why is he talking about death and seeming to say that death is still a possibility there? Well, again, some people would argue this is a glimpse of this silver age. This is a glimpse of this in-between age. It's much better than the present age, but not quite as good as the coming age because there still is the concept of death present. Jumping down, we'll get to Ezekiel 40 to 48 in a second. Let's jump down to Zechariah 14. Very, very similar passage in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. There's this cataclysmic battle. Uh, the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding regions is split in half, and the Messiah comes and places his feet on either side of the rift. Um, certainly, we would think of in terms of the Revelation, Armageddon, the final battle. But picking it up in verse 16, it says, Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king. 
the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And if any of the people of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So again, what Zechariah seems to be painting is a picture for us that Messiah has come, Messiah has established an incredible new age, but there still is the threat of curse. There still is the threat of punishment. There still seems to be the possibility that some of the nations will be disobedient. So certainly, it's better than right now, but it doesn't seem quite as good as what we would expect for eternity. A silver age. The last one on that sheet, it's Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. It's the entire end of the book of Ezekiel. Remember, this is where Ezekiel is given this incredible vision of an idealized temple. And it's a temple that has never been built. It was not the temple that was built by the post-exilic community under Zechariah and Haggai. It was not Herod's temple. Nobody thinks that that either of those were the temple of Ezekiel's vision. So the question becomes, what did Ezekiel see? He saw this amazing temple. He saw this incredible, you know, idealized possession of the promised land by all of the tribes of Israel. He saw certainly something that was way, way, way better than Israel had ever experienced before. But animals were still being sacrificed. There was still an altar for sacrifice. So how do we fit Ezekiel's temple? Well, again, some people would say this is a silver age. So this is just a couple of examples from the Old Testament prophets that if read a certain way, you could see that maybe they are indicating a silver age. Now, they never use the word millennium. The word millennium, well, actually, it's two words in the Greek. It's, it's, it's the thousand years. We use the word millennium. The only time a thousand years is explicitly mentioned in the Bible is in Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 6, and then one more time in verse 7. There's not a single other passage where a thousand years is mentioned in reference to this period of time. Now, obviously, Peter says, you know, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. There's other places where it's used. But this is the only place that a specific period of time as a thousand years is referenced. So that's what makes it either crazy or hilarious that so much has been written about it. But part of that is because what you do with these six plus verses radically affects how you read a lot of the rest of Scripture. As crazy as that sounds. Because there's probably a lot of you here sitting here tonight who aren't even sure what you think about the millennium. And that's okay. But once you start to sort of spin out some of the things that are talked about here and put them back on the rest of scripture, it affects. So what we're seeing right now is what you think about this affects how you read the last nine chapters of Ezekiel. You know, when is this going to happen? Has this already happened? Is this going to happen? 
it's affected by these verses in Revelation. How do you understand Isaiah 65? How do you understand Zechariah 14? It's affected by this and a lot of other passages as well. So all we're kind of putting out there initially is part of the question of the millennium. Is there something better than today, but not as good as eternity? And reading some of the Old Testament prophets with that lens, you could see how, well, it seems like that's kind of what they're talking about. It seems like, you know, Zechariah is talking about an age where Messiah has come and vanquished his enemies, but they're still kind of there. And if they don't go up and give tribute to the Lord every year, the Lord's going to curse them. So that's, that's part of the challenge that we're facing tonight, okay? So that's just sort of the, the introductory issue there on the sheet. Any, any questions or comments about that? Because what we're going to do next is actually read Revelation chapter 20. But does this as just sort of a preliminary point make sense to everyone? Yes? Okay. So now let's jump in. And of course, if we're in Revelation 20, we've skipped 19 chapters. <laughs> so, but we got to jump there if we want to actually get to the part where the thousand years is specifically mentioned. But we're going to talk about you know, how it fits in the larger context of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 20, we're primarily going to look at verses 1 to 6, but then verse 7 and following, verse 7 says, after the thousand years, then describing more events that takes place. So that's just one more verse where this idea of a thousand years is mentioned. But let's read together Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, okay? And again, bear in mind, this is the only passage in the entire Bible that makes reference to this thousand-year period. So it says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There it is. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from the deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, or the rest of the dead did not come to life for the entirety of the thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him 
for a thousand years. Then just picking up in verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. Okay? So those seven verses, and I think it's six times, maybe five times, that the thousand years are mentioned in those verses, that is where the whole idea of the millennium comes from. Now, let's go back and break it down a little bit. There's a lot to cover, and so we're going to kind of come at this from a couple of different ways. First of all, these verses seem to pretty clearly divide into two groups. You have verses 1 to 3, and you have verses 4 to 6. And certainly you can see that these are somewhat different in what John describes in terms of what he saw and different in their focus. Now, of course, the commonality is that, you know, they're back to back, but also that the thousand years is mentioned. Now, there are some who would argue that the thousand years of verses 1 to 3 is different from the thousand years of verses 4 to 6. But what we're going to find is that at almost every point that we make, there's going to be about three different views on that, three different variations to that. That's why this subject becomes so incredibly complex. But we are going to assume that the thousand years mentioned here and here is the same. Okay? There are a couple of clues that are given to us in the text. The reference to the thousand years in the second section seems to be making reference to the previous thousand years and a couple other things maybe as well. But we're just going to kind of assume that the thousand years being talked about here is the same. All right. Now, just to kind of summarize, the major event of the first three verses is that Satan is bound. That's the main emphasis of the first three verses. Satan is bound, and he's bound for a thousand years. An angel comes down from heaven, has a key to a place that is called the abyss, has a great chain, grabs the dragon, grabs the serpent. It's incredible. It's not even Jesus. Satan is defeated by just another creature, by an angel. He is bound, and he's thrown into the abyss, locked and sealed. and as he is bound, he can no longer deceive the nations. That's the emphasis that the Apostle John makes here. The binding of Satan specifically hinders him from deceiving the nations. Okay, so obviously a lot of questions about that. Then the next three verses, John sees a group of people. A lot of disagreement and discussion about who that group of people is. We'll get into the details a little bit more. But there's a group of people who come to life. And as they come to life, they reign with Christ, they rule with Christ, and they judge with Christ. And they judge for a thousand years. So there's a group of people who come to life and judge and rule or reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, part of how John summarizes this coming to life, he calls it the first resurrection. Well, one of the challenges we face 
is there's no other passage in Scripture that refers to the first resurrection. <laughs> there's no passage in Scripture that talks about the second resurrection. But obviously, if John is calling this the first, it certainly seems reasonable that he's implying there is a second. There is a second death, which is made clear. Everyone who participates in the first resurrection, the second death, has no power over them. Now, the second death, we are told very clearly a couple verses later, is eternal death in the lake of fire. If we jump down to Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, first resurrection, nowhere else named, and nowhere is the second resurrection ever named. Second death, obviously, of course, more than implies, makes clear that there is a first death, but Scripture never explicitly says this is the first death. It does, in the verses that we just read, explicitly say, being thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity, that is the second death. And everyone who participates in the first resurrection has nothing to fear from the second death. Okay? So, the main emphasis of the first three verses is that Satan is bound for a thousand years. The main emphasis of the second three verses is that there are a group of individuals who come to life and rule with Christ and judge with Christ for a thousand years. Okay? Is that much clear without trying to parse out all of the details yet? Is that much clear? Okay? Now, a lot of folks say this has to happen after the return of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, if you look at Revelation chapter 19, specifically beginning in verse 11 and following, it is one of the most glorious and powerful and clear descriptions of the return of Jesus Christ. Picking up Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse with a rider. It's called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Almost everyone believes this is an incredibly powerful, glorious description of the return of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the millennium, Revelation chapter 20, comes after Revelation chapter 19, the return of Jesus Christ. That's why a lot of folks say, look, the millennium, whatever it is, it has to come after the return of Jesus Christ. Because Revelation chapter 19, Jesus returns, and then Revelation 20 talks about the millennium. So anyone who believes that the millennium comes after the return of Jesus Christ is called a pre-millennialist. Very, very simple. Pre means before. When does the return of Jesus Christ happen? The premillennialists argue the return of Jesus Christ happens before the millennium begins. Because that's just the order that's given to us in the book of Revelation. So initially, you might say, well, that's kind of a slam dunk, isn't it? I mean, if anyone's saying that the millennium happens some other time than after the return of Jesus Christ, I mean, are they reading the same book of Revelation? So you can see, again, that's a pretty convincing argument, as all of these different positions will have some very convincing arguments, but they will have some significant weaknesses as well. So on the sheet that I gave you, the, the millennium, three different approaches, the first one there is called the pre-millennialist view. Now, I apologize. This is a super simple diagram. I actually made it pre-COVID because we were doing the eschatology study and then COVID hit. And the next class that we were going to do in this eschatology study was the millennium. And then COVID hit. And now here we are. What is it? Four years later, three years later. And we're picking it right up. But anyways, I didn't make any improvements to this glorious diagram because I wouldn't know how to even if I wanted to. So, but basically, based on the order of Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 20, the premillennialists say the return of Jesus Christ happens and then comes the millennium. And that is, of course, this premillennial view. Okay, now we'll get to that in more detail in a second. A second major approach to the millennium is called the post-millennial view. Now, what do they believe? Why is it called post-millennial? They believe that the return of Jesus Christ happens after the millennium, okay? That's why it's called post-millennial. They believe that God establishes the millennial period of time before the return of Jesus Christ. And they believe that the return of Jesus Christ actually brings to a conclusion the period known as the millennium. They are called post-millennial, okay? So let me just erase this for a second part of this so that we can fill in some of the diagram that you have on your sheet there. Because the symbols that I use are super simple. 
but this way you kind of have a sense of what I'm talking about here. So all of these are basically timelines, okay? And every one of these positions has the same starting point on this timeline because that starting point is the first coming of Christ. That plus sign, that's, that's the cross. <laughs> so Carl is going to give you a much more, you know, aesthetically pleasing, exciting version of this. Then the other one that they all have in common is the lightning bolt. And the lightning bolt, of course, what does that stand for? The second coming of Jesus Christ. And look, all three positions absolutely are in agreement that Jesus Christ will come again. So the two major points on all three timelines are in agreement. Everyone agrees that Jesus Christ came a first time. All of them agree that Jesus Christ will come a second time. Absolute agreement. Now, what the pre-mills believe is that Jesus Christ comes a second time and then the millennium begins. Again, based on the simple fact that Revelation 19 describes the return of Jesus and Revelation 20 describes the millennium. A lot of premillennialists believe that the return of Jesus Christ is a single event. Historically, the idea of premillennialism has been in the church for hundreds and hundreds of years. Historically, premillennialists have always believed that the return of Jesus Christ is a single event. And when that single event occurs, then the millennium begins. A much more recent development in premillennialism happened in the 1870s, 1860s, 1880s, so about 100, 150 years ago. And what they started to say is that the return of Jesus Christ is two parts. So what they believe is that Jesus Christ comes once, but it's an invisible coming, and it's a partial coming. And it's what most of the church refers to as the rapture. He comes part of the way, but it's not obvious to all of the world. He takes up all the believers, and then he goes back to heaven. These folks are premillennialists. So they believe that the return of Jesus Christ, not only does it happen before the millennium, but it happens in two parts. Now, historically, this is not what premillennialists for hundreds and hundreds of years believed. This is a much more recent development. This approach to premillennialism is called dispensationalism. Sorry for all of the big words. And it differs quite significantly from historical premillennialism. And we will not go into all of it I'm not sure I understand all the aspects of this. And, and even as I'm saying this, I am not an expert in these things. I have a bit of, of, of comfort dealing with the, the different things, but you could ask me a lot of detailed questions where I would just say, I'm not sure. And part of it is because there's about 100 different premillennial spins. There's about 20 different postmillennial spins. So in other words, these are the major camps, but even these are incredibly diverse and divided, okay? So these are the pre-mills. 
Now, what the post mills believe is this is the second line on your sheet. But the post mills believe, just like the pre mills, they believe that Jesus Christ came a first time. They believe that Jesus Christ will come a second time. But they believe that somewhere in between, the millennium begins. So somewhere in the church age, not a separate age. So they would adhere to the idea that there is the present age and there is the coming age. But something happens in the present age. Something happens in the church age that ushers in the millennium. This is something that happens before the return of Jesus Christ. In some significant way, Satan is bound. In some significant way, Christianity becomes far more the dominant presence on planet Earth. Evil is marginalized. It's still present, but it doesn't really have any significant sway. This is an incredible advance of the church, advance of the kingdom of God. And you see support for this, say, in Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16, saying, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Post-millennialists are incredibly optimistic. They're incredibly optimistic about the unstoppable advance of the church of Jesus Christ, the unstoppable advance of the kingdom of God. They believe that we as the church will usher in this glorious silver age. You might think as well of the parables in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of God is like leaven that works its way through the entire lump. It starts very small, but eventually the entire lump becomes leaven. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts very small, but eventually it becomes the largest tree. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach my gospel to every nation. So post-millennialists are incredibly optimistic. And they take very seriously the passages of scripture that talk about the unstoppable growth of the kingdom to talk about the unstoppable advance of the church of Jesus Christ in this world. And so what they believe at some point within the church age, the millennium begins. That at some point, Satan is bound. At some point, there is a more glorious rule and reign of folks with Christ. And evil is marginalized in a way that it never has been before. Unbelievers are no longer winning the day on planet Earth. The church and followers of Jesus Christ are. That's the post-millennial position. Again, with a lot of variants. Okay? So pre-millennial, Jesus Christ comes again. Most would argue in two parts. Then the millennium begins. Post-millennial, the church ushers in the millennium. And then at the conclusion of the millennium, Jesus Christ comes again. Okay? Both of them have strong scriptural support. You know, one of the, the strong emphases of the premillennial position is the only way that evil is going to be dealt with once and for all in this world is for Jesus Christ to come again. That's the only way evil is going to be dealt with once and for all. 
And again, obviously, that's a strong emphasis in scripture. So you can see how, even as we've just looked at two positions, they have strong biblical support. They are taking up genuine threads of scripture and points of scripture that need to be emphasized. You know, we absolutely need to be optimistic about the advance of the kingdom, the power of the church, you know, the power of the gospel to transform a lost and broken and sinful world. I mean, if we didn't believe that, we wouldn't be following Jesus. We are convinced that he is the answer. We are convinced the proclamation of the gospel has the power not just to change individuals, but to change cities, states, countries, to change the world. I mean, post-millennialism really, really rightly emphasizes the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? So do those two positions make sense? Yes? Interestingly enough, a lot of post-millennials do not believe it's a literal thousand years. Most pre-millennials believe it is a literal thousand years. But a lot of post-millennials, they don't believe it's a literal thousand years. They're just simply believing that when it's described as a thousand-year period, it just means it's a long period of time. Okay? The last position on the sheet that we're going to talk about is actually kind of misnamed because it's called amillennial. And in Latin, the word a means no or not. So strictly speaking, the word amillennial means no millennium, which is not what amillennialists believe because I'm an amillennialist. I'm going to tip my hat right now. You can disagree with me or argue with me later. I'm an amillennialist. And I absolutely 100% believe in the millennium. So one of my seminary professors said, a better name for this is Nunc Millennialist. I can't believe this name is not Ken Shingon. Because apparently, I never studied Latin, but apparently in Latin, Nunc means now. So the amillennialist position is incredibly simple in one regard. It believes the millennium began when Christ came a first time, and it believes the millennium will end when Christ comes a second time. So it is saying that the church has been living in the millennium since she was born on the day of Pentecost. So the amillennialist actually believes that the entirety of the New Testament era, the entirety of the church age is the millennial thousand years that John is describing in Revelation chapter 20. It's incredibly simple. The amillennialist believes that when Jesus Christ comes a second time, that's it. We're ushered into eternity. Everything that happens at the end of the age is done in one fell swoop when Jesus Christ comes a second time. That's it. Okay? So it's the easiest to explain. And one of the really solid points about this is what we talked about when we did an introduction to eschatology, which is there's two components to eschatology. There's future eschatology, which is what we have been talking about for a couple of months. But remember, what was the first part of this class? Realized eschatology. How many of you remember that phrase? Realized eschatology. A strong emphasis of the New Testament is that when Christ came a first time, it was such an incredibly amazing, awesome, powerful event that so many of the good things from the coming age 
we're now pulled back into the present age. Things like we are now those upon whom the end of the ages have come. The incredible emphasis of the amillennial position is that we are living in the day of fulfillment and have been since Christ came the first time. Realized eschatology. So much of the good that is coming in the future age or the coming age has been pulled back into the present age when Christ came into the world and then ultimately with the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And, that, and that's what Peter understood. I mean, Peter quoted Joel and said, this, this is the last days. You know, we are living in the age of the Spirit. What, what has been promised for thousands of years, we are now walking. So the amillennialist really emphasizes realized eschatology. Okay? Do those three positions make sense? Not that you would be expected to go into great detail, but pre-mill. Jesus comes before the millennium. Post-mill and amill are the same in that Jesus comes at the end of the millennium. The only real difference between the amill and the post-mill is the amill believes that the entirety of the church age is the millennium. The post-mill believes that there is a significant event at some point in the church age that transforms the church age into the millennium. But post-mill and amill are actually pretty similar in a lot of regards. Pre-mill is a little bit more different in its approach. Okay, let me just pause here to see if there are any questions about this so far. Okay, all right. Well, question. Yeah, question? Um, so an amillennialist would see the entire church age as the millennium and then absolutely we would we would argue that the millennium began when christ came the first time and that the millennium will conclude when christ comes a second time simple now obviously the millennium is not a literal thousand years so Let's let's talk about that. Let's start to talk about maybe some of the challenges that the amillennial position faces. All right. Was that was that your only question, Floor? Or did you have more to it? I don't mean to. That was my only question. Thank you. Okay. So, if John calls it like six times a thousand years, then how can you be biblically sound in saying that it's not literally a thousand years? I mean, if John says it's a thousand years, then why isn't it a thousand years? Because obviously, if the amillennial position is right, we're 2,000 years and counting. Well, the key to that is understanding the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is highly symbolic. For those of you who have read the book of Revelation, you may have noticed the number seven occurs everywhere. There's seven messages to seven churches. There's seven stars in Jesus' right hand. There's seven lampstands among which Jesus is walking. There's seven seals on the scroll. There's seven trumpets. There's seven bowls. Seven is everywhere. You may have noticed the number 144,000 
There's 144,000 that John sees on a couple of different occasions. Then the New Jerusalem is 144,000 stadia long. And there's 12 gates and 12 foundations. 12 times 12 is 144. So if you are reading the book of Revelation and you are actually trying to take the numbers literally, I think you are completely misunderstanding God's choice of the book of Revelation as a means of communicating his truth. Revelation falls into a much larger category known as apocalyptic literature. Just like the Apostle Paul wrote letters. Well, we have a lot of letters. Apostle Paul was just following a format. He wrote a letter the way first century folks in Greek wrote letters. That's why he always put his name first, because that's what you did. He was following the norm for writing letters in first century Roman Empire in the Greek language. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. For us, it's very strange. For the first century world, it was not strange at all. Again, I have a volume at home that's just part one. And it's like 1,200 pages. And all of this is apocalyptic literature that's not the Bible that was written a couple hundred years before Jesus came into the world. This is a very, very, very common way of writing. And one of the hallmarks of apocalyptic literature is that it is symbolic. So if you are coming to the book of Revelation and arguing that the numbers have to be taken literally, I think you are actually doing an incredible disservice to the specific type of literature God chose to inspire John to see and write. It's actually much easier to assume that a thousand years is not literal because it's mentioned in Revelation. Now, when you get to the Gospel of John and John says, Jesus, you know, helped him catch 153 fish, if you're taking that number symbolically, you're missing the point because that's a totally different genre. Gospel account is narrative account. If John says he caught 153 fish, you should assume that he caught 153 fish. But now when you're going to the book of Revelation, if you're assuming a thousand years is literal, you're really misunderstanding that type of literature. It's actually easier to assume that the thousand years is not literally a thousand years. Okay? So it's actually not that hard at all to assume that the millennium may be a lot longer or not, maybe less than a thousand years, okay? Another challenge that both, both the, the post mills and the ah mills face, how do you work around the fact that Revelation 19 has a clear description of the return of Jesus Christ? And Revelation 20 has the account of the millennium. Well, again, if you are assuming that Revelation from chapters 4 to 22 is written in a straight line, this is a big problem. But in fact, a more careful reading, I believe, of the book of Revelation shows that it is describing the end of the world repeatedly. At the end of each cycle of seven, at the end of the breaking of the seven seals, at the end of the blowing of the seven trumpets, at the end of the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath, there is, to me, pretty convincing evidence that what is being described there is the end of the world. Now, you can go and read that for yourself. 
Just look at the embedded structure in the book of Revelation. Again, the one that I just named, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven symbolic histories, seven bulls. And look at the end of those. And if you were just reading those passages in isolation, you would probably say, isn't this a description of the end of the world? Let's just quickly read one from Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Let's see what John saw. Beginning in verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars from the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, to me, that sounds like the end of creation. If you are taking that as something less than the end of creation, I'm not sure what verses you're reading. For some reason or another, modern Western people have put on certain parts of the Bible their expectation for chronology, their expectation for how God is going to present information to us. They just assume that you're going to give things in chronological order because that's a very Western way of reporting things. God is not chained to that. God, God is not chained to that. You know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church has taken the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and tried to come up with an absolute timeline of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And you know, that timeline doesn't exist. It's impossible. It's impossible to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Compare all the stories of Jesus and come up with an absolute timeline for Jesus. It's impossible. Because God's primary concern when he inspired Matthew, Mark, and Luke was not to give us things in chronological order. That was not his primary goal. That's why John has the cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2, because it fit the theme that he was presenting in John chapter 2. But anyways, it's absolutely reasonable, and I think actually a better way to book, read the book of Revelation to see each cycle of seven ending with a description of the end of the world. So if the breaking of the sixth seal is the end of creation, then what's going on when the trumpets start? Well, we're cycling back. We're cycling back. So to me, it's not at all out of the way that Revelation is written to say that the things that are described in Revelation 20 don't necessarily have to happen chronologically after what is described in Revelation 19. Because if Revelation chapter 6 is the end of the world, then everything from Revelation 7 on is happening after the end of the world, which no one believes that. Every island, every mountain, every star is uprooted and fallen. That's, that's all of creation. I mean, John couldn't have been given more clear language. So actually, again, if you are reading Revelation as it is given to us, it seems pretty reasonable to assume that, hey, maybe it isn't a straight-line chronology. Maybe it's actually a much harder book to understand if I'm trying to say everything from Revelation 4 to 22 happens in the order that it's given to me. I don't think so. I think it's actually impossible to do that. And so for me, 
The fact that the return of Jesus Christ is described in Revelation 19 does not even remotely mean that the millennium has to begin after the return of Jesus Christ. Because we could simply just be cycling back. And part of the focus of the millennium is what's happening to Satan. Okay? So two of the big problems with the amill position and with the post-mill position, that it has to be a literal thousand years. No, it doesn't. Numbers in Revelation are highly symbolic. That it has to come after the return of Jesus Christ. No, it doesn't. It's actually, to me, much harder to read the book of Revelation without seeing it cycle through, without seeing each cycle of seven ending with a description of the end of the world and end of the age. Okay? Does that make sense? Question? Yeah, please. Eric. Are you there, Eric? Sorry. Hello. Yeah, I had my hand up uh, from from the previous thing. You actually answered the uh, uh, the question with regards to that, which was how do you account for the um, uh, Revelation 19 as a context for for uh, uh, the millennium in Revelation 20? So that was my that that was my question. Oh, good. I'm glad we could answer a question of yours, Eric. That makes me very happy. Okay, we've only got a couple minutes left. Actually, that, that clock is fast. So we've got about seven to eight minutes. And I may keep you a couple minutes late. No, I wouldn't do that. All right. Now, let's start to look a bit more carefully at what is specifically said in these verses. Sort of the thousand years literal or not. Could it be before the return of Jesus Christ, even though it's mentioned after? Those are sort of some general issues. Now, as we actually dive into the text of Revelation 20. Let's unpack some of that. Now, this whole issue of Satan being bound. Now, one thing we've got to make sure we understand, John does not explicitly tell us when this happens, when it happened, when it will happen. All he says is, I saw this. You know, John saw the return of Jesus Christ. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. John saw some things that have definitely happened. Famine and plague and war. The world has been seeing that since the beginning. So John has seen some things that have definitely happened. John has seen some things that have definitely not happened. He doesn't tell us in Revelation 20 when this happens. I mean, if he did, most of the discussion would be resolved. He simply says, I saw this. Now, the one thing that we absolutely can hang our hats on is that Satan is a tameable beast. He is a foe that is able to be contained and beaten. Now, whether we believe that's going to happen in the future, whether we believe that's happened in the past, whether we believe that's happening right now, that's another discussion. But again, one of the things we want to really latch on to is what is unmistakably clear? What is unmistakably clear that it, is, it only takes another creature to bind Satan? Jesus is just sitting in heaven saying, okay, angel, you go do this. Jesus doesn't even have to lift a pinky to do this. This is the most ferocious, awful, powerful enemy that God has, and it only takes another creature to bind him and seal him in the abyss. So if nothing else, let's make sure we hold on to that, because that is great news. That is encouraging news. Now, 
what actually can we understand in the detail about Satan being bound? Can we absolutely for certain know when this is going to take place or when this did take place? No, I don't think so, because John doesn't tell us that. He just simply says, I saw this happen. Now, what folks would say who believe that the millennium has not begun yet, so post-mills who believe we've not entered the millennial age yet, pre-mills who say, obviously, Jesus hasn't come again, the millennium hasn't begun yet. How can you, ah-mills, say the millennium has begun? I mean, Peter himself says that Satan is a, a roaring lion roaming about. What chained, abyss-sealed dragon is a roaring lion roaming about. Well, that's a big problem. Absolutely. Remember, I said none of these positions is a slam dunk. But turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Jesus has been driving out demons. Right there. Strong connection. Satan, demons. Jesus has been driving out demons. And some of his opponents are accusing him of driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of the Lord of the Flies, the, the prince of demons, Satan himself. So, I mean, this is an incredibly blasphemous, heretical accusation that is being leveled against Jesus. They're saying that you're doing this by the power of the kingdom of darkness. That's why they're obeying you. Well, obviously... <laughs> Jesus was not driving out demons by the power of the kingdom of darkness. But he says something very interesting in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. He says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions? So Jesus says he loves to do is speaking in a metaphor. He's speaking in an image. He is driving out demons. He is entering into the kingdom of darkness and defeating it. He is taking on the demonic realm and plundering it. That's what he's doing. So he's giving the metaphor of a strong man who owns a house and has a lot of possessions. Now, the guy who wants to come and steal the possessions of the strong man, what does he have to do first? We'll look at what he says now. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first binds the strong man? Then he can rob his house. So what is Jesus saying? I'm not driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of the Lord of the Flies, I'm actually able to do this because the strong man of the house that is the kingdom of darkness has what? Been bound. It's a very common Greek word, so we don't want to make too much of it, but the very Greek word that Matthew uses here is the exact same word that John uses there. Now, again, it's not a super obscure word. It's just as common as our word to bind. But the exact same word that John uses to say that Satan is bound is the word that Jesus is recorded of using by Matthew in Matthew 12, 29. So is it possible that the binding of Satan in Revelation chapter 20 
actually coincides with the binding of Satan that Jesus inaugurated when he came into this world and started driving out demons. He was significantly curtailing the free reign that Satan had. I think it is. Let's go to John. John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. And then we'll end with this. Some Greeks have come and asked that they want to see Jesus. Jesus is in the middle of, of giving a, a discourse about what's going to happen to him. And in John chapter 12, uh, let's just pick it up in, in verse 30, because this is a little background. The Lord has just, the Father has just spoken from heaven and said, I've glorified your name and will glorify it again. Um, so Jesus says, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. The voice of the Father that just declared from heaven. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus is talking about his fast approaching death on the cross. One of the things that is corresponding with that is the prince of this world, which of course we all know is Satan, will be driven out. Now the Greek word that's used there is a word ekbalo. In Revelation chapter 20, when Satan is thrown into the pit, it's the Greek word balo. Again, not an identical word, but the same root. So what Jesus is saying clearly in John is that when he goes to the cross, the prince of this world, Satan, is being cast out in a way that he never has been before because the eternal son of God in the flesh is dying on a cross. I mean, we know that. Is it possible that the limiting of Satan that is described in Revelation 20 actually is corresponding to what was happening when Jesus came into the world the first time? Now, again, you may not be convinced, and I'm not trying to convince you. All I'm saying is there seems to be at least a possible connection between the binding and limiting of Satan that was inaugurated by Christ coming into the world the first time and the language that's used in the book of Revelation. One last thing. Remember, the emphasis of Satan being bound here is what? He can no longer deceive the nations. Before Jesus came, who received the revelation of God? Before Jesus came, who received the revelation of God? The nation of Israel. Did God reveal himself to all of the nations? Nope. I mean, yeah, a, a little bit. But the clear emphasis of the Old Testament is God expected Israel to reveal him to the nations. With the coming of Jesus Christ, what is now happening? The gospel is being preached to every nation. 
What is happening amongst the nations? People from every language, tribe, nation, and tongue are receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it possible that the binding of Satan described in Revelation 20 so that he can no longer deceive the nations is actually a description of what Christ inaugurated so that now the gospel can be preached to all the nations. National Israel is no longer the unique people of God. The people of God now come from every nation, every language. The gospel is being preached in every Serbian language, every Spanish language, every tongue. The gospel is being proclaimed. Satan has now become relatively powerless to stop the advance of the gospel to every nation. Is it possible? that that's what's being talked about here. Satan has been bound when Christ came the first time so that he can no longer hinder the proclamation of the gospel in every nation and the reception of the gospel in every nation. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 24, until the gospel is preached in the whole world, he's not coming again. So to me, when you start to look at this in terms of other passages of Scripture, because what I want to try to do is if I have a passage that's tough, and Revelation 21 to 6 is tough, there's no doubt. I don't want to try to invent a whole new way of reading Scripture from these six verses, which to me is kind of what premillennial dispensationalists do. I mean, maybe that's a little crass, and if there was one here, he'd probably slap me. but they kind of invent a whole new way of reading scripture from those six verses. I'm a little hesitant to do that. What I want to try to do is say, hey, look, are there some things that are in here that actually resonate with other passages of scripture? And to me, in terms of these first three verses, the incredible limiting of Satan that occurred when Christ came into the world and died on a cross and rose again is the clear teaching of the New Testament. Satan absolutely is still a ferocious opponent, and Peter didn't mess up when he said, you know, he's the roaring liar roaming about. But from another perspective, he's been put on a leash. He's been put on a chain. His ability now to deceive the nations has become far more limited. And the spread of the gospel is going into every nation, as Jesus has ordained that it will. Okay? So I realize we're over time. Just some things to begin to think about, okay? And again, let me just reiterate. My goal is not to convert you all to be amillennialists. At the end of this, if you're a card-carrying, you know, premillennialist, I will love you and fellowship with you and absolutely not hinder our relationship at all. All I'm saying is I think there's a better way to understand this passage of Scripture. Then, like I just said, to me, when we dive into premillennial dispensationalism, to me, kind of what they're doing is they're inventing a whole new way to read so much more of Scripture based on these six or seven verses. I'm just hesitant. And again, as I told you as well, you know, for 10 years, I was a card-carrying premillennialist. I was a Hal Lindsey junkie. I was a left-behind junkie. And the problem I had, and I've told you guys this before, is I could never pull all the threads together. It was just so incredibly complex. 
And I poured over Hal Lindsey's books. And I could never pull all the threads together. And finally, when the amillennial position was presented to me, I was like, oh, this seems to make so much more sense of so many more passages of scripture. Now, it doesn't solve every problem, and it certainly has some thorny issues. What do you do with death mentioned in Isaiah 65? What do you do with the curse mentioned in Zechariah 14? Those are big problems for the amillennials, big problems. As my seminary professor said, if you're an amillennialist, you take a far more adventurous approach to Old Testament prophecy. But if you look at how God told Moses he was going to speak to the prophets, I don't think that's unbiblical. He said, I'm going to speak to them in riddles. I'm going to speak to them in dreams. It's going to be unclear. That's what he said. I speak to Moses face to face, but the prophets, no. I don't speak to them the way I speak to Moses. I'm going to speak to them in very strange ways. I mean, Daniel didn't even understand half of the dreams that he had. They were so perplexing to him. So yeah, you take a much more adventurous approach to Old Testament prophecy, but I actually don't think that even violates what God himself says we should do when approaching the Old Testament prophets. They had some wild visions. They did some wild things. I mean, that's the world of the Old Testament prophets. That's another. Anyways, I could talk for another three hours. I'm not going to because I've already held you over. Now, Seema and I, as you know, are driving the van to El Rancho del Rey. And so we are gonna be gone for a good chunk of the month of March. So the next time that we will meet is March the 29th. So one month from tonight, I apologize, but we're gonna be away both the 15th and the 22nd. So you will have to hold all of this in waiting until we wait, meet again on March the 29th. But let me close this out with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just wanna thank you so much for how incredibly good you are to us and just the amazing ways that you lavish your kindness and goodness upon us. And Father, even as we, we dive in to tackle a pretty challenging issue, we just thank you, Lord God, that we can ultimately put our hope and our trust in you. And at the end of the day, we can have absolute confidence that what is necessary for salvation has been made clear to us. As our elder John Hone used to say, he was a pan-millennialist. It will all pan out in the end. And Father, ultimately, if that's where we end up, that's okay. Because what we do know is that one day Jesus Christ will come again. And when he does, he will bring to completion the work of the kingdom that he has started. And when he comes, for all of us who are putting our trust in him, we will be with him forever. And we can absolutely hold on to that. That is more than enough to live for and to serve you for. So again, thank you for this time together tonight. Bless everyone who's making their way home. Bless all the folks that were on Zoom as well. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen.